Well, thank you so much to the three of you for being here and lending your expertise to this. Dr. Drachevich, you have written about this before. You, you've talked about how you discuss this with students. Well, the rest of us are students of life. How do you even approach something like this invasion and this war now with students? Where do you begin? So I, the, the first thing that I always just do is is let them ask questions. Uh, I think that was the scariest part a year ago was that for many of these students, they've not been in a moment where, frankly, it felt like um, 9-11 or the Cold War or these big moments where the world seems to change. And a lot of what I found is that students just wanted to get good information. And so there were things that I obviously had some background in and could provide that information. I had also spent quite a lot of time following everything on the ground. Um, but um, a lot of it was just giving them a space to ask questions and knowing, allowing them just to sort of figure things out themselves. And I've continued to do that uh, since even this year, I teach a course on international relations theory. And one of the things that the students know is, is that if they've seen something on the news, I give them five minutes at the start of every class. Okay, is there anything we want to talk about? Then I can at least say, well, here's what I think about this. Here's where I think it might be going. Here's where else to get more information. And that usually then allows them to, one, start to find things themselves, which is what we should be doing, I think, at the university level is empowering students to, to be able to do their own research and critically think about things. But it also then allows them to better understand what's going on. Dr. Ditschok, maybe that's something that we can touch on right now because it's it's difficult for all of us to understand what is going on, because I think a lot of us thought this sort of behavior was behind us, not just country to country, but as humans, but it isn't. No, that is the thing that I think has shocked most people, that Russia continues to act as an imperial power under the leadership of President Putin, and where Ukraine is moving forward into the 21st century Europe, Russia under Putin's leadership is being dragged back into the 19th century. And many of us hoped this wouldn't happen, but astute observers had always said, watch Putin. He's an old KGB operative and he wants to restore the old Russian empire. And the only thing he understands is force. And when he first annexed Crimea, the international response was very lukewarm. And that important him to escalate. And I think what Putin is surprised about now is the fact that the Western democracies are actually united in trying to stop him. The question is, will they have the, the strength to actually stand up to him as forcefully as is needed? And there's a big question in all of this. Dr. Drachevich, you've written recently about genocide because that's been a big question we'll talk with professor osterveld about that and about the war crimes aspect of this that was brought up almost immediately but can you dr dracevich talk to us about the genocide element of this and what's even being admitted mm -hmm. so uh even as uh, recently as this week uh there have been uh, videos of putin speaking with the individuals responsible for uh essentially the 
well, we'll I'll just put it this way, the kidnapping of Ukrainian children from uh, areas of Russian occupation. Um, and essentially what they're doing is they're taking children from Ukrainian regions, moving them into Russia, and then um, having them adopted by Russian families, which this is explicitly against the Genocide Convention, uh, the forcible transfer of children um, from one region to another with the aim of raising them as a different uh, culture or nationality. Um, and they're boldly just openly advertising this and so that just by the sheer uh sort of the agreements in place in the international community that alone uh meets the sort of the the call for genocide um and then on top of that there is just and and uh, professor Oosterveld can speak on this a bit more you have the issues of the targeting of civilians you have the reports of torture chambers you have uh the mass graves that we are, have found and we uh, th th we, we believe that we might be seeing more, which is, again, just one of those uh, sort of unfortunate um, and terrible things that we're all kind of waiting as Ukraine keeps liberating territory, what else might be found. Um, that's all something that the Russians have not really hidden and is becoming uh, very plainly apparent for the world to see. We're talking right now with Dr. Alexei Drachevich, who is in the Department of History at Western University, with Dr. Marta Ditschok, who is a specialist in international politics and history from Western, and also Professor Valerie Osterveld, who is the acting director of Western University's Center for Transitional Justice and Post-Conflict Reconstruction. And boy, would it be nice to be having a conversation right now about post-conflict anything in this case, but Professor Osterveld, we aren't. And in fact, one of the things that was brought up very early was war crimes, that, hey, if, if Russia is committing war crimes, let's get these war crimes to a court somewhere, let's get this stopped, let's get this resolved, and that never did happen. Where do we stand, Professor Osterveld, on war crimes now? There are three different justice pathways that are being undertaken right now. So right, one thing that um, is very interesting to know, and not so many people pay as close attention to this as they should, but the Office of the Prosecutor General in Ukraine has opened more than 65,000 files related to war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide taking place since last year. And there have been some prosecutions. Uh, as you can imagine, it is not necessarily easy to investigate and prosecute in an active war zone, but there have been some prosecutions. Um, a number of those have been in absentia prosecutions. So those are prosecutions where the Russian soldier who has been charged is not present in the courtroom, but there have been some where individuals have actually been tried in person. Another justice pathway that is going on, but is understandably confidential, is the International Criminal Courts prosecutor and his office has been investigating. Now, we don't know and we won't know um, until it's made public whether any warrants of arrest have been issued. Um, but the, they are certainly on the ground and they're certainly doing work every day. And the last one is there's something called the Joint Investigation Team. So this is a number of European countries working with Ukraine and the International Criminal Court to prosecute any individuals 
who happen to uh, flee or be located in any of the other European countries who are responsible for crimes in Ukraine. So I guess we can see just how complex this is in that way. Do you hold out hope that post-conflict this might become easier or is this just going to be this complex an undertaking all the way through? Prosecuting war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide is always very complex, but it is certainly possible. And there are a lot of minds, a lot of people turning to figuring out how to make this work. Um, I should mention that there's one other discussion that is going on in the international community and has been going on for a year now. And that is to create a special tribunal to try aggression because the most fundamental crime that was committed when Russians poured across the border in order to take over Ukraine or try to take over Ukraine was the crime of aggression. And that is not something the International Criminal Court can try. So there is quite a bit of effort going on to to see if such a tribunal can be made into reality. We are approaching... I don't like calling an anniversary. I don't know if any of you look at it as an anniversary, but as humans, we count time an awful lot. And it has been nearly exactly a year since Russia invaded Ukraine and began a war in Ukraine. The devastation we have seen is something that I don't think any of us expected we would ever have to see in a case like this. The threat is there. It's something that certainly unsettles a whole lot of people. Uh, we're talking right now with Dr. Marta Ditschok, with Professor Valerie Osterveld, and with Dr. Alexa Drachevich, all from Western University, all giving us some perspective on what has happened. We've talked about genocide. We've talked about the complexity of going after war criminals for crimes against humanity, for crimes like genocide. Maybe it's time just to look at where this conflict is going, because Ukraine stood up very bravely and continues to stand up very bravely. We've heard that Russia didn't expect the pushback. They didn't expect this to be very difficult. Dr. Ditschok, when we look at where this is going, Ukraine seems to be able to hang on and seems to be willing to fight. They're not going to turn and say, "Okay, yeah, fine, bring back the old USSR, no problem. They don't seem to be in that position. What do you look at right now as to where this conflict is headed? That's an excellent question. Uh, Ukraine is certainly not going to stop fighting. However, Russia is not going to stop attacking. We're at a point that this is a year of escalated war because the war actually started in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea and started war in the Donbass. And what happened in 2022 is an escalation into full-scale war. So this is a process that's been happening not just one year, but coming on nine years. At this point, Ukraine and Russia are at a standoff. And Ukraine is much smaller than Russia, and it cannot win by itself. So far, the Western democracies have been providing Ukraine with various types of aid, sanctions on Russia's economy, international condemnation, and most importantly, by supplying them with weapons. So they've been giving Ukraine enough weapons so that Ukraine hasn't lost, 
but not enough weapons that Ukraine can actually win. And we're at a point where Ukraine is once again saying, please give us more weapons because they are outmanned and outgunned. And the discussions in Western capitals are what type of weapons to give Ukraine, how quickly to give weapons to Ukraine. In the meantime, Ukrainians are being killed and their cities are being destroyed. So what the Western European and North American and basically democratic countries need to decide is what the end game they want to see is and work towards it. Because this type of war is destroying Ukraine, but not actually stopping Russia. So if the goal is to stop the war and get Russia out of Ukraine, more weapons need to be sent to Ukraine. And those discussions are happening in European capitals. And we still hear people like Macron talking about, we need a solution that will not provoke Putin. And I find those sorts of comments highly worrying because how much further can you provoke him? He's already invading Ukraine and threatening various other things. So this isn't, the discussion shouldn't be about provoking Putin, but about stopping him and pushing him back. And the peace negotiations, Ukraine has repeatedly been calling for peace. Nobody wants peace more than Ukrainians. But how to achieve peace? Putin is not willing to negotiate. So that is not an option at this point. Sadly, this has to be a military solution. Dr. Martin Nitschok with us, Dr. Alexa Drachevich and Professor Valerie Ostervelde as we talk about this war in Ukraine and where it is headed. Dr. Drachevich, when we talk about individuals in history who are like Vladimir Putin, and we've seen others Every once in a while, you have to wonder, is Putin going to travel down a similar road where Ukraine is not enough, where, you know, parts of the the fringes of Russia right now, not enough. He wants to do more. He is going to do more. And how many times have we seen it? We can go back to either World War One or World War Two, where the world kind of said, well, you know, well, we'll wait a second. Just just let's let's make sure that this really is a problem. There are concerns about things like that. How do you perceive what's happening in that way? So in a couple of ways, I think first off is that Ukraine's um, resilient defense a year ago in the early days of the escalation, I think really changed part of the sort of the calculus a little bit. Um, I've always sort of taken the approach that Putin gambled, believing that he would be able to take Ukraine and the West would essentially be asleep at the switch. Um, and instead, obviously, the West stood up and, and, and has supported Ukraine and Ukraine has been able to... Um, resiliently defend its territory. Um, but we know that the aim was to rebuild some form of the old Russian empire in some way. Uh, there were uh, news reports, even in the early days of the war, um, that were quickly scrubbed when things didn't happen the way they, that uh, they had planned. And even just we're still seeing with the uh, so-called annexations of September, the goal has always been a territorial grab in some way. But there was always fears that, uh, well, if Ukraine falls, then what's next? Currently, right now, a big concern is, is Moldova and uh, whether or not um, Putin has designs there or Russia has designs there. Uh, but the Baltic states have been sounding the alarm. Poland has been a notable um, contributor to Ukraine um, for Ukraine's defense, knowing they might be, even though they're with NATO, 
um, that they might be a potential target. And we've seen with Finland and Sweden, uh, both uh, starting and, and changing in many cases, decades, if not uh, a century and a half worth of foreign policy uh, to join NATO because of Russian aggression. Um, the fact is, is that it seems that Putin has not in any way at least backed down from the the actual military aspect. Um, I, I there, There's a lot of bluster with him as well, which I think has, is his main sort of way of trying to shore up any support that he has at home, uh, while also trying to play to international audiences who might be concerned about things like escalation and things like that, where they'll take what he says and, and run with it. And this is where you then have issues for calls of peace and, and whatnot. And I think this all sort of comes to how uh, the Russians have tried to sort of try to control the information um, sort of warfare aspect of this, but Ukraine has done a very good job at one, um, countering a lot of that, but also um, having the world sort of stand behind it and be this sort of bulwark for uh, stopping Russian aggression. We do have that additional threat this time that maybe some of the other conflicts that have started with someone who appears to be very power hungry and very willing to invade other nations. We have that threat, Dr. Dracevich, of nuclear power, nuclear missiles, and that's a threat that Putin throws around every once mm -hmm. in a while. How much of a threat is that? So I always tell students there's never uh, it's never zero percent when nukes are involved. There's always a chance um, that said is what I always then follow that up with, although uh, the uh, suspending, which is not something that's really in the uh, negotiations, the start uh, treaty that the Americans and the Russians were working on has caught some to be uh, to be concerned about this because of the swapping of information. Uh, but the one thing we can at least sort of, I think, to give us some pause about how uh, far they'll go with this is a couple of things. First off is that American intelligence and NATO intelligence has been pretty good for this war. They predicted uh, much of the escalation. They have also been doing a really good job of following things. The chances are they will know if the Russians are serious about any of their nuclear threats. And we have seen with things like the missile that landed in Poland a couple of months ago that got everybody very concerned uh, that NATO leaders are taking measured responses to anything that might be deemed um, an escalation. I think there's that. The second is, is that, as Professor Duchok sort of already mentioned, that Putin has already escalated in the one way that he can, and unfortunately the world has, while we're outraged by it, um, it's it's the considerable threat to Ukrainian civilians, the constant attacks on uh, infrastructure and civilian infrastructure. And... Putin ha can gain a lot of what he wants simply through, um, and Russia can gain a lot of what they want simply by just essentially bombing Ukraine and, and uh, striking Ukraine's uh, cities and civilian infrastructure and energy. And the belief is that time, at least for the Russians, that they believe time is on their side, that eventually Western unity will crack. All of those things suggest that nuclear weaponry, while always going to be a concern, would not be something that necessarily will be um, the most uh, appropriate choice that the Russians will, will take. Plus, they've also been very clear about their nuclear doctrine, that they will only use nuclear weapons if either attacked first or there's an ex existential threat. And the real, uh, the sort of the, the, the thing that we have to be realistic about here is that Ukraine has made this clear. Zelensky has made this clear. There is no desire to go across the Russian border. This is about defense of Ukraine. And 
the big concern is what does Crimea mean to, to Russia? We'll find out at some point. Um, but the West has stood firmly behind Ukraine in terms of their uh, desire to liberate all of Ukraine. We're talking with Dr. Alexa Drachevich from the Department of History at Western. We're talking with Dr. Marta Ditschok, who is in international politics and history at Western, and Professor Valerie Osterveld, the acting director of Western University's Center for Transitional Justice and Post-Conflict Reconstruction. Professor Osterveld, maybe we can end off with the legal side of things again. And that is, you know, we can we can look at force versus force to stop conflicts. Is there anything under international law that could aid with that? Or is it simply we're still the same kind of creatures that we used to be? Force fights force. And then we sort out everything after on paper. Well, there are laws that indicate already that what Russia has been doing is illegal in many different ways. So just for example, we were talking about war crimes earlier, and Russia has been taking its rapidly depleting um, number of missiles, for example, and throwing at Ukraine the least, um, sorry, the, the biggest types of missiles that are absolutely not usually used in civilian areas, but because Russia's uh, arms, uh, number of arms has been depleting, um, they're throwing at civilian infrastructure and apartment buildings and whatnot, these massive missiles that kill and injure so many Ukrainian citizens that destroy civilian property so thoroughly and that is against international humanitarian law and the principle of distinction, the principle of proportionality. So we already know that the law, that Russia has gone beyond the limits of the law in so many ways. Russia and President Putin in particular nod towards the law. So for example, President Putin will make statements to try to show that they're shielded, that the Russian actions are shielded behind the law, but they are in many cases just words. They are ways to try to deflect um, the criticisms of what Russia has been doing. So I guess I'll end by saying there is law that uh, it's being violated in many different ways. And then what comes now and later is justice for violating those laws. Let's hope that's exactly what we get, something that feels like justice from from the perspective of all of us who are watching and feeling for Ukraine and anyone else affected. Professor Osterveld, Dr. Dachevich, and Dr. Dischok, thank you so much for all of your time and your insights today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us.